0: Welcome to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, the podcast that dares to think differently. I'm your host, Matthew O'Connell, and in each episode I explore a topical issue concerning Western Buddhism and spirituality, or whatever you want to call it, with the help of philosophers, religious scholars, and intellectuals from a wide variety of fields, as well as practitioners and teachers, always with the intent to explore new terrain of thought and practice. That's right, we're looking for some kind of revolution here. You can download or play episodes for free at SoundCloud, iTunes and Stitcher, and keep up to date with news through Twitter and Facebook. Throw comments at us, criticism, Critique and suggestions for guests and topics to cover. You can also find writings, show notes, and much more at posttraditionalbuddhism.com. The Imperfect Buddha Podcast recommends O'Connell coaching. Yes, that's still me. If you're looking for support or help exploring practice beyond tradition in a coaching dynamic, or if you're stuck in your practice, or have become disillusioned with Buddhism or some other path or practice, or if you're a secular atheist looking for some kind of way forward without religion and ridiculous beliefs, then you might want to get in touch. If any of the issues that come up in our episodes are touching, striking, or important to you, that's also the material I just love to explore. So visit oconnelcoaching.com for more information. Most of our episodes are sponsored by bands. Groups from Bristol, my original hometown in England, or Trieste, Italy, where I currently reside. If you like what you hear, then why not support the artist? Most of whom can be discovered at Bandcamp. That's all. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast. My name is Matthew O'Connell. And I'm the host of this whole thing. This episode is the second in our new series on practice, or what I might call the practicing life, and it, rather like its initial half, is part of a conversation that was improvised and unexpected. This means that the approach taken is far more fluid and less structured than many of our previous episodes opportunity knocks on occasion and you have to go with it and I found myself down in Croatia in a three-way conversation with Ken McLeod and Hokai Sabul. Now last time I didn't tell you who they are I just assumed you knew and perhaps you do perhaps you don't but here's a quick bit of info on both of these chaps so you know what's going on. I'm also going to introduce some of the themes that pop up in this part of the conversation so you can decide whether it's for you or not. I will finish up by saying a little bit about the direction I will be taking with the next guests coming along, one of whom has already been here and been recorded in what was, well, a rather entertaining and eventful conversation. Of course, when you're speaking to people in person, over a meal, in your house, in the intimacy of somebody's room, well, the kind of conversation that emerges is quite different from that recorded over Skype with someone you've never met before or any exchanged emails with. So bear that in mind as you listen. Now, Ken McLeod, he's been around American Buddhism for a long, long time and primarily involved with Tibetan Buddhism, which is his practice and training background. Ken taught within the Kagyu tradition for some time under Kali Rinpoche before going off to LA and kind of doing his own thing and being something of a pioneer in that regard, starting up a coaching model for teacher-student relationship and looking at how to translate much of the Tibetan Buddhism he'd studied and practiced and struggled with into a vernacular and idiom that might be more accessible and approachable to Westerners. He continues on in that vein, really. He's still writing and still translating, and much of his personal investment in that kind of work is to improve his ability to transmit concepts and the possibility of practices and experiences in a way that Westerners can relate to. Hokai Sabul is a Croatian. He's a Shingon practitioner and he's taught in that tradition. And he also teaches other kinds of approaches to working with one's experience and this thing loosely called the Dharma. He was one of the first people to propose a post-traditional Buddhism. And he also works in a coaching and mentoring dynamic with people one-to-one. Both of these guys have taken a similar approach to a concept that is mysticism. And for some folks, that kind of thinking, or word, rings alarm bells immediately, panic even, huffing, puffing, scorn, and judgment. And all of that is perfectly understandable, and certainly is appropriate in many cases. Now obviously we're talking about this term being used with Buddhism, not with Christianity. And just like words like spirituality, and awakening, and enlightenment, and other key terms used in Buddhism, and other spiritual traditions... These words are heavily loaded, they carry a lot of history, and a lot of conversation, if it's done in an intellectually honest way, has to involve some kind of unpacking, and some of that goes on in this conversation. But the mystical approach, or taking a mystical style approach or framework, offers something as it takes away something else. If you're interested or open-minded about this, you'll have to explore with us as we engage with some of those challenges. A major part of our conversation today is looking at the tension that emerges or exists between a practitioner engaging with something like mystical practice and the wider social issues. The context which allows certain types of experiences or relationships that can be transformational, destabilizing and support people in well, what many of us would like to think is great about Buddhism in challenging this whole idea of an independent self which exists apart from the world mysticism provides certain ways of doing that kind of work, which some people will be drawn and attracted to, others less so. And part of our discussion looks at the tension that lies as well within American Buddhism and Buddhism in the West more broadly, between the Puritan or the, let's say, Protestant-style approaches to practice that tend to be more visibly uh, seen in the insight community and the mystical style approaches which are often mirrored in certain aspects of Tibetan or Japanese Buddhism, whether Zen or Shingon. Now those tensions may be seen as like an internal conflict within Buddhism, but of course they're not. They're actually part of a a much richer and wider social sphere of challenge that concerns questions such as discipline, commitment, individualism, social participation, The role of teacher or teachers and students, power dynamics, the role of community in supporting or providing context for certain kinds of unusual experience that many of you out there who are perhaps non-believers or non-religious and spiritual will be very aware of. It's a motivation for why some people hang on with organized religion, because it provides the possibility of ritual, certain types of social practices that allow unconventional, uncontrived or less conceptually driven experiences to take place. And that last one is something we really get into as well. A kind of practice which looks at what happens if I'm not only focused on thought or concepts or ideas or ideology. One point I bring in that might satisfy some of those who are sceptical about such things is the role that non-contrived or non-premeditated action has in our lives. How important it is for many of us to engage in experiences which allow us to relax out of the mind and not just meditation right we can also talk about love making drinking good wine eating good food in the terms of the positive being out in nature allowing yourself to be warmed by the sun these kinds of experiences that's one side of it the other of course is pain and suffering and loss Many of those kinds of experiences produce an experience which is non-conceptualised, right? Not navigated via our beliefs or opinions or concepts, and that's the basic point. Now, it's not that that resolves the issue. There are many issues, and many of them will come up in future discussions with other guests. Issues that concern the degree to which the mind can be naked, sensory experience can allow us to experience the world as it is and I think that there are practical ways of resolving some of those conflicts which are well I think manageable and reasonable and would provide us with at least some way forward in the often dichotomous splits that separate people out from each other that might be my utopian naive romantic thinking could well be feel free to let me know if you think it is but I'm going to be heading in that direction to some degree even as the series becomes more critical. This is, of course, the practice season. And practice generally means doing things and making things happen. Now, here are a few other topics that are going to come up. And I hope you found what I've just said at least a little bit helpful in contextualising what will come after. And perhaps in thinking about what you heard before in the first half of my discussion with Ken and Hokai. We talk about the themes of ethics and morality, bringing Sloterdijk again, as well as Jonathan Haidt. We talk about universal human rights, universal human duties, the role of authority in granting such things. We look at nirvana and freedom as verbs, as things you might do or be practicing. We look at purity and purification, the difference between them, the ideals of purity and the dysfunctions that emerge as a result. I link this as well to the taboos of our time and how the desire for purity often shuts down our creativity our capacity to draw on our own resources and use our own intuitions. We look at reactivity and reaction, how they might be useful, and how you can distinguish between the two. We look at the risque practice, which is often pushed aside in favour of safer forms of mindfulness and of sanitised practices, which may actually not push anybody into any new terrain at all and that are often concerned with well being, the maintenance of safe spaces and that kind of thing. Is there still room for controversial, risque, disruptive, transformative practice, teacher-student relationships and paths? Well, we get into that. We talk about social duty and what we owe to others, and I tell the story of a character called Emily. A true story. That's not her real name, by the way. But you'll need to be patient to get the whole picture before diving in if you're one of our more charged up, motivated and angry social justice warrior types. If you only hear the first half of the story, you might jump to conclusions. Get the whole picture. Personal responsibility is important here, but maybe not in the way some of our interesting conservative friends might think. In the last part, we take some of the ideas we begin with and look at opinions, beliefs and ideology briefly. We talk about keeping an open mind. Again, as a verb, as something you do, not as some end state. And we look at how that might be useful in engaging with others with different opinions. Each of us has a story or two to tell about practice that some will appreciate more than others. And we look at how many basic spiritual concepts have lost the power they may have once had. And in fact, that could be why they so so often end up just being clichés. Anyway, I've said a lot. This longer introduction has served a purpose. I hope it's given you a bit of context for making sense of what follows. Our next guest will be Daniel Ingram. And Daniel and I have a two-part conversation as well. Before we get to Daniel, I'm going to be doing something slightly different. And I kind of feel okay about this, but part of me, mm, well, is slightly uncomfortable with the idea. In spite of just giving you a 10 minute plus introduction, I really don't like listening to the sound of my own voice. I don't mean like just hearing it. I'm quite happy to edit and I do the editing, so I hear my own voice a lot, and I've kind of got used to it. I mean, I'm not that interested in proselytizing or speaking out into the world as if I was some unique authority or anything, because I don't believe I am. I really think that what's most interesting is when we, we talk together, when we explore together. And in that space, if I'm lucky, I get a challenge or two. I get to reflect on my own limitations in what I understand, refine, grow and learn. But there is a challenge here. Practice is such a rich and vast topic. It can bring about unexpected directions. And since so much of where I'm heading off this year is unknown, I've decided that it might be useful to introduce to this series a number of relatively, yeah, relatively short reflections, specifically critical reflections, on the themes that come up in conversations, especially in those that are more free-form, like the ones I've just had. So before you get to Daniel, which will come up in a few weeks, you will get the opportunity to listen to a a 20-30 to minute reflection from me on some of the themes that are present in the two-part conversation I had with Hokai and Ken. The idea would be to contextualise further, to link those themes to wider society and the challenges we're facing intellectually at this time, and to bring some of the historical context to those themes so that we may all be better informed. Because what I would like, in a sense, is for listeners to do their own work, right? To listen, but to be active listeners. To bring their own critical faculties, but also their experiential life, their own practising life so that the critical and the theoretical and the practical and the experiential can journey together throughout the remaining episodes of this year-long, if not lifelong, journey through the practicing life. That's something for you to look forward to, I hope, and bear with me as I do so. And as always, you really are invited to put in your own voice. It takes effort, it takes commitment, but hey, why not? So, here we are, Ken. We got off our first half of this conversation today with Hokai as well. There are many topics that we could explore, but you came up with quite a nice list back there when we were eating lunch. Can you, can you remember it? Well,
1: one of the things we exchanged in our emails was thinking about mystical practice more in terms of art than uh, religion. I put this idea forward uh, because I think for two reasons. One, I think there are a lot of useful analogies between certain forms of art and uh, mystical practice. And also, I think uh, it could clarify, eliminate, uh, a, a number of, uh, of confusion about ethical uh, matters. So that's one possible topic. Another topic, which is not unrelated, I'm not sure whether I mentioned this over lunch, is something I found very very difficult to comprehend, and I, I do not know how to push back against it, is the degree to which, uh, from Gen X on down, people tend to think of their spiritual practice in transactional utilitarian terms, which is makes the kind of effort you're going to make in mystical practice almost impossible. As I said at the beginning of our conversation, mm-hmm. uh, it's one of the reasons I use the word mystical, is to take it out of that framework.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, because yeah, and so there's that. Well, why did not we begin with those two? Because, okay. I mean, we started more or less with Sloterdijk in our first half, and you said that he had an interesting way of defining and distinguishing between ethics and morality.
1: Yes. That's been very, very important to me on a personal level. Because at a certain situation in my life I was faced with, and I think this is a good way into it, uh, I I was faced with what I felt was a contradiction in Buddhist teaching, a a, a deep contradiction. On the one hand, in the uh, hermit tradition of uh, practice, you are constantly encouraged to disregard your reputation. And on the other hand, you are equally consistently encouraged to be moral. And there's a situation in my life which put these two absolutely in conflict with each other. And I couldn't figure it out. And the reason I couldn't figure it out is because Moral seemed to me had a lot to do with reputation. So to be moral was to care about your reputation, Mm. whereas you're being told not to care about your reputation. The two books, uh, two writers that uh, helped me get clear about this were, one was a guy called Jonathan Haidt, who's a contemporary scholar in America, who wrote a book called The Righteous Mind. He's written other books, but that was the one. And in... He discusses morality. Uh, it, it's, it's a book about his research on morality. And one of his main points, he, he, he says there are three aspects to morality, but I'm only going to focus on one here. It is uh, how a group decides who belongs and who doesn't belong. And from that perspective, you can see it has everything to do with reputation. The other book was uh, we've already talked about or mentioned uh, was Slaughter Dyke's uh, You must change your life. And he says it uh, rather differently, that uh, morality is part of the autoimmune system of a society. But to the same thing. However, in that book, uh, because he's talking about practice as the big differentiator in the 21st century, he defines ethics as the way that you conduct yourself in the world which is supports or is an expression of your practice. And we see this, for instance, doctors are allowed to do things to human beings that ordinary people are not. They can cut them <laughs> open for surgery. And thus, that is their practice. And there needs to be a whole ethical framework or whatever to go along with that. Mm-hmm. So, this connection of ethics with a practice and morality with a social order it's the only substantial differentiation between ethics and morality that has made sense to me. And I really appreciated giving that to Sloderlight. Then it becomes very straightforward. The term Shila, in the Sanskrit term Shila, or Sila, I suppose it is in Pali, should not be translated as morality. It should <coughs> be translated as ethics. Because these are the way these are the behaviors which support your practice. And if you are a monastic, then there are certain behaviors which support that. If you're a, uh, in Mahayana, doing uh, Mahayana practice, then there's the bodhisattva ethic, which is, supports your practice of being a bodhisattva. Vajrayana, if you're a uh, knowledge holder or whatever you want, to in, and so forth, then there are certain ways that you conduct yourself which support that practice. And that just made a whole lot of sense to me, and I I feel quite clear about it, because it's really about ethics in Buddhism, and from that perspective, there isn't any morality in Buddhism, which of course runs into a lot of
0: uh, conflict with a lot of the current strengths that are going on, at least in American Buddhism. Yeah, I was thinking about the the, the presence and, and role of morality and ethics more broadly in society and the difficulty, I think, for actually for most people to make the distinction that you spoke about. I think it's a struggle many people have, and therefore they mix up.
1: Well, it's the ultimate put-down of cocktail party. <laughs> oh, you don't know the difference between morality and ethics, and most people wouldn't
0: know how to no, no. come back on that. No, no. <laughs> Which just tells you how confused we are generally about Distinguishing between ideas of right and wrong, and then what's good and bad, and then what we should and we shouldn't be doing. Yes, you know, which are different types of dichotomies I just introduced, right? You exactly. Know, yeah. One of them's value-driven; the other ones about well, what will happen if I do it?
1: And also, I think you were alluding to this in the way you opened up this conversation this morning, is that people are not used to thinking about their lives in terms of a practice, which. I think is different from where we were, say, in the nineteenth century. Mm. Certainly in the medieval times, most craftspeople did think about their lives in terms of a
0: practice, and their practice was their craft. Yeah, and that was also the, the single purpose in a sense of their existence. And what else are you gonna do with all that time? They didn't have these distractions we have today. Yeah. Or the options, right? This manageable selfhood.
1: I, I think it has more to do with
0: options and distractions. Yeah. yeah. And that's one of the problems I think that's increasing fragmentation. And it brings us back to certain types of new discussion that are going to have to evolve at some point if we're going to survive this century, is how to get better at making choices about what we actually focus our attention on and feed both as individual practice, but also as collective forms of practice. And I know that's a big topic, but it's, it's one that I think is in the background of many of the themes that, that we see emerging. Which is why I like that idea of the development of a, a universal a human uh, obligation or duties.
1: That opens up a very different topic. which I It does, think. it does. <laughs> uh, and, and that is the matter of rights. A, a friend of mine in uh, Northern California uh, sent me an email a few months ago saying, I don't think I can, as a Buddhist, I can subscribe to any theory of rights. And his point was, rights accrue to an individual. Mm-hmm. to self. So, he was having trouble with that. Yeah, But I, I come at it from a different point of view. And, uh, and I'm very, very troubled by the language of rights that permeates a lot of people's thinking these mm. days. Because historically, rights never exist a priori. Mm. They're always derived from an authority. That is, if you served the king, the king gave you a right to a piece of land or Whatever, you know, even the first Western corporation, the Hudson Bay Company and the East India Company, these were charters from the king and they were, they, they were given the right to do these things. Mm-hmm. So using the language of rights, you are necessarily invoking the uh, presence of a higher authority who not only grants those rights, but protects those rights. Now, my friend argues that it was the suffragette movement, but this is gonna get me into all kinds of trouble on this, but oh, what what the hell? Uh, There's a suffragette movement that gave rise to the notion of rights existing without a prior obligation. One can argue that or not, I don't don't buy that completely. But when I look at the language of the Human Rights Charter, Mm -hmm. going back to Eleanor Roosevelt, there you have the idea, or have the idea introduced, by virtue of being a human being, you have certain rights. Mm-hmm. That's a very noble, very wonderful idea. But it invokes a higher authority who grants those rights. Now, Christian, or the Judeo-Christian tradition, God that grants those rights. What is the secular power that is going to enforce or protect those rights?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, what the left I don't think realizes is that when they are when they use the language of human rights, they are invoking the idea of a global authority, and this is what, absolutely what drives the rights nuts and says that, uh, because the only authority we have on the planet is the UN, and they are trying to take over America, which is exactly what China and America. Have very very hard problem with the UN because they see this as a supranational body, mm-hmm. and I'm very concerned that in this process, the left is preparing the ground for a, 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 a very very authoritarian structure, mm-hmm. uh, unwittingly.
0: Yeah, and you're not the first person to make that observation, course course.
1: No, I'm. Mean, it's. it's, um, it's I, I don't think I'm original here <laughs> but, but, either, either, but when you're talking about the practice of mysticism yeah. all of that is completely beside the point mm. because as a mystic you actually aren't uh, the, the functioning of society and the political order mm. is not your primary concern Mm-mm. your primary concern uh, one can put it as a relationship with the mystery of life but the way I prefer to put mysticism is it's the seeking of a relationship with life does not depend on the conceptual mind. Mm-hmm. And when I say it doesn't depend on the conceptual mind, I don't mean you have a blank mind and you go around in this kind of weird state. It means that there's a kind of knowing, which seems to be possible in the human being, which does not depend on thinking. And to live from that is a very, very different way of living. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is what the, the, the mystic is aiming at. And it took me a long time to come to that. It comes up in various ways. But so many people are practicing Buddhism without realizing that they're actually seeking what, in Western terms, would be called mystical knowledge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think there's a problem
0: there, too. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting one. I have something to say about it that's not quite coming clear in my mind on this. In a way, what I'd like to be able to do is, is to, uh, to find a way of talking about this further that would, that would reduce the alarmism that's triggered it in certain types of people as soon as you use those kinds of words, you know, even non-conceptual mind. In a way, I'm, I'm trying to sometimes come up with a language that would allow this kind of discussion to take place in other kinds of contexts, but that wouldn't lose what, what you're pointing at. And I'm not there. I haven't arrived at that point, and I'm certainly not capable at the moment. But I think it does take place in other contexts. I'm not saying it doesn't, but in this explicit manner that we're coming at it now, especially if you're departing from the context of Buddhism, which is one of the contexts which which we share, and that's allowing us to talk. Okay, here's a way of saying it, and I'm thinking about it out loud. Hard and fast dichotomies are often established. People go to one side or the other, right? So we, we have a very ill-informed or uncreative uh, discussion about the idea of mysticism, it would be very easy to fall into a conversation that would base itself in the historical discussion of why mysticism is wrong, or <laughs> why you can't have a non-conceptual mind, and why social constructivism, which is often presented as the alternative, is right or wrong. And I think within all that the human immediately gets lost. For me is interesting is it doesn't matter who you're talking with, let's start off with some matter of fact statements. The matter of fact is is that people are not constantly rationalizing and conceptualizing everything before they act. The fact is, if
1: they were, they
0: wouldn't act very much. They wouldn't get much done for sure. So the question is not whether that's happening, but it's what is it that's happening necessarily? And how do we understand it? And what would it mean to have a practice that was invested in that kind of quality of being? And that's an interesting discussion from my view, even for people who are highly rational. The sorts of people that would have a discussion where they would side with the idea that everything is socially constructed. Here's my first suspicion. One, they're probably not parents. That's the first one. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing how many intellectuals spend so much time wasting their time because they're not parents. You know? That's
1: a very good point.
0: uh, The second one is like, how do you... Then it's like, let's look at some practical applications. If you believe that idea, right, how did you socially construct the idea of an erection or an orgasm or revulsion or... Unpredictable excitement in your childhood or in your adulthood. It's like let's start talking about those things, and we still don't need to talk about mysticism just yet. Now, which are the the, the most important moments of your entire life? What happened there? You know, and it's Generally like what's
3: speaking,
1: the... the most important moments of your entire of your life are those times where you're experiencing intense difficulty and you find your way through.
0: That's one. It's not the only one. It's not the only one. Right? Yeah. But my question my my point would be, how many of those moments were actually you thinking rationally and conceptualizing what was taking place? You know? And if that's not a starting point for considering non-conceptual, non-conceptualized relationship with life, then what is there? And then if you turn that into a practice, and again, if we're leaving Buddhism outside of this, what aim could that kind of practice have? And what would be the interesting... Opportunities that arise if you turn that kind of seeking into a life. But most people who are
1: practicing, practicing today and putting up scary quotes here, would run away from a practice that is formulated on those principles, mm. because if practice consisted of connecting those with those moments in which you were pushed or driven or whatever to just acting. Mm. out of your immediate experience, Mm. they would find the practice far too frightening.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And you know what? One of the the immediate critiques that would pop up from that would be this incapacity to distinguish, and and this is a point we might talk about further because it's related to many other topics, distinguishing between a a division that I think is one of the most interesting things that I've, I've got from you, and it's very, very simple, but it's learning to distinguish between reactivity and response. I know those are your, your exact words, reactivity is the word you want yeah. to okay, yes. And that's something you know, that you learn about in any form of discipline or practice, right? You learn what it means to relate to things fully and to distinguish between reactivity and response. And responses can have within it the quality of efficacy, but it's not explicitly utilitarian necessarily. And in martial arts, you would talk about that most likely in terms of being grounded or centered in your one point, right, you're able to act from a place of power or effective or adequate response to what emerges in life. And some of the critique, which I think, is a distraction from what's more interesting. In martial arts, you don't have time to ground. Mm. If you
1: take the time to ground, you're already there. Okay. So, from martial arts point, and I think it's very, I think it's very appropriate to bring this up. In martial arts. If you, if you haven't worked out a relationship with your life where you are walking around grounded all the time, so it's just there and ready to go, you have not completed your training. Yeah. Um, I, I and, yeah. That, and that's what I wanted to put yeah. in yeah. here yeah. because I didn't want people listening to this to have the idea, oh no,
0: you're grounded. No, no, you're already dead. Yeah. <laughs> Which is that point about training and learning. Yeah. And developing skill, but one of the most common critiques I hear of this this um, as soon as you start talking about mysticism and spirituality is that rational side of like our collective moment is like yeah, but that automatically means, as you said before, you're walking around with your head between the clouds, or somehow you're tapping into some universal godlike wisdom which yeah. you're channeling, and it's like no, 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 that's not what we're talking about. Well, that's not what we have to be talking about. We can talk about this other quality of being, which is non-conceptual, non-rational, or um, non-preparatory, or non-intentionally driven in in terms of each discrete moment, is actually developing enough capacity to respond effectively to any circumstance, which could be a builder in a builder yard, the guy, you know, pruning the the vines to collect wine, or a fireman defending, you know... uh, Notre Dame. Notre Dame.
1: Well, I think you're absolutely right here. Uh, The most... the, the Situation in which many people, without any spiritual training, connect with acting and speaking, and that may sound like a contradiction, but it isn't, acting or speaking without relying on the conceptual mind, is when someone close to them has experienced a tragedy or a loss. And they're with that person, someone close to them, and that being close to them is very important because they're close to them, they aren't trying to take care of them. It's not that. And they might be sitting with them, and they're just able it's to... It's just the you. Shall I finish this point? Yeah, please do. Uh, there you are. You don't know where the words come from, but they're the right words. Hmm. You aren't particularly conscious of yourself. I mean, there's a- actually no sense of self at that point. And when you look back on it, you realize there is a magical quality to it, and many, many people have that experience with someone. Mm-hmm. That's what I like to advance. That, that's a, 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 an experience that enough people have had a, a connection with or have gone through it themselves. That oh, and then you can ask them, what would it be like to, to live from that all the time? Then going to the point you're you're making, that isn't a head in the cloud thing. That's, it's extraordinarily grounded and extraordinarily present. And, but you don't think in terms of empathy, you don't think in terms of compassion, none of those concepts are going through. All you're doing is being with this person and the right actions and the or appropriate actions and appropriate words come and you don't know where they come from. Yeah. But it's not a problem.
0: Yeah. It's non-contrived. Absolutely, yes, that's one of the key elements yeah. Yeah. That that's another way, I think, just to be explorative, you could define that. As a path, you know, a life that's non-contrived—that quickly becomes a contrivance. <laughs> that's why you need to be apprenticed to somebody else. Well, yes, but that. But you,
1: no, but the, 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 what actually defines a path has to be something more concrete than mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. And through that, you learn how to be non-contrived. Mm-hmm. But if you give someone, tell someone to just not be contrived, mm-hmm. then that—that that becomes right, a right. Convoluted, It's a practical very, issue, yeah, yeah, very yeah, quickly. I'm coming there from the from the
3: teachers. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a metaphor used uh, with with the two sticks. Yes. To create a fire.
1: And they burn each other. They, they burn each th- other. Eventually, th-
3: everything gets burned. Yeah. yeah. But that's not a that's not a once-off e- e- event. It's a cyclical, again and again and again. again. and again.
1: Yeah. And, uh, uh, and the point So here, you, ne-
3: you need a contrivance that kills the contrivance so to speak.
1: Well, yes, but, but taking your uh, example further, people often think of freedom or awakening as a state they get to. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I've become aware of in conversations with a number of Theravadan teachers is that in some of the Theravadan traditions, nirvana is much more a verb than a noun. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and freedom is more an ongoing process the state. So, using exactly. uh, yeah. yeah. Hokai's metaphor, every situation you meet, the stick starts rubbed together, and you go empty, and that is freedom. Mm. Is the ability to go empty in a situation, and then a response arises from that, rather than a reaction.
3: Yeah. and the life has the uncanny ability to come up with new challenges. <laughs> it's got all the sticks. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's got sticks in all forms and shapes. Well, yeah, I think that, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think
1: that's what we're facing right now. We're, we're, we're in a world which is very, very different from the world in which we grew up. Yeah. And we're trying to figure out how to negotiate it. And so this is, you know... A like new pair
0: of sticks.
3: <laughs> a new pair of sticks.
0: <laughs> yeah, within, within the various um, shamanic disciplines, there's this idea of allowing the world to, to impregnate you, right? They use far more graphic metaphors in a lot of these uh, shamanic traditions. So it's like how how much can you allow yourself to to be impregnated by life actually determines the capacity you have to allow yourself to be renewed and reborn in each situation, discover some element of freedom. And one of the reasons I quite like these really graphic metaphors is because they stand as a counterpoint to some of this puritanical idealism that we were speaking about before, which is very prudish, I think it's very prudish towards the things we're discussing now but towards any idea that life might become so complicated that I can't quite manage it or that I'm actually going to have to get my feet dirty or my hands dirty. I think that's another another issue that comes up with some of the ways that spirituality or these kinds of practices are presented more generally. They're sanitized and they're made safe and they can't be too risky. They can't be too much potential for loss.
1: Well, you're introducing several different elements here, so I want to pick up a couple of them. One is the difference between purity and purification. Purity is an ideal, and the yearning for that ideal is always motivated by anger. You hate dirt. okay? Purification, on the other hand, it's the word we use in English. I know what the Tibetan is, Jawa, uh, I don't know what it is in Japan or Sanskrit, but it's sometimes translated as training, sometimes refining, sometimes practice, sometimes purify. that covers that's the whole
3: range that it covers. Well, the title "Bhūdi Marga" means the path of purification. Yeah. yeah,
1: but here, this purification isn't seeking purity mm. in the naive sense. It is the process through which you change your relationship with your reactive patterns, so that you no longer have to act out of it. That to me has been a very, very important distinction. To take people away from this idea that they need to be pure. Now there are traditions, uh, Kriya Yoga in Vajrayana, uh, a lot of Hindu practice, in which the way you practice purification is to live very, very purely, but that's the practice. Uh, and that easily comes into a grasping at very pure states, which is, is what becomes problem, problematic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this, the, the problem arises when you you can't distinguish between the method, uh, uh, or the method becomes an end. Mm-hmm. You might say.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now there's another idea in what you're saying. I wanted to pick up, but I can't remember it right now. Maybe come back. Say something
0: else. Say something else. <laughs> Blood and guts. So what comes to my mind.
1: Okay, that takes you straight into the realm of the second initiation in Tibetan Buddhism. The
0: second initiation?
1: Yeah. In the second initiation, you're initiated into the possibility... Actually, it's, you're right on the money. You're initiated into the possibility of not reacting by being shown things that would ordinarily be disgusting, mm. blood and guts. And it reveals the possibility... Of finding the awake mind in the experience of revulsion. That's one way of putting it, what the second initiations.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, that makes me think about the conversation we were having before about teaching these uh, these teenagers critical thinking skills. Yes, because it's a kind of other form of that. You know, it's like yes, yes, right. ...the Taboos of our time, which is one of the questions I presented in our first half of the conversation. Mm-hmm you know, can you sit with the big issues of our time and not be within the reactive patterns, right? That's exactly what you're teaching, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Same story. The other point that's maybe something you guys have I, uh, some thought on is uh, that kind of non-conceptual mind, even simplified in the way we were doing before Hokai arrived, it's also very creative. Yes. There's a very creative potential there. And one of the things that I'm trying to promote in these guys I teach critical thinking skills to is, is that there does seem to be a creative potential in which new thought might emerge or a new set of possibilities of response rather than reaction. And it seems to me that um, this kind of Puritan edge in our political discourse is, is not just about eradicating things or separating out us and them. It's also about a very strong desire to avoid feeling certain types of feelings and emotions, as if they would be contaminated, which relates to this idea of purity. Yes. And I'm fascinated more generally just by how people are using religion or Buddhist practice in this case, and this might resonate with your, your switch between spirituality and religion, in order to avoid having to experience certain types of qualities of experience. You know, What purpose is it put to? And I wonder sometimes if this kind of mixing of like the social concern and the switch away from spirituality to religion is also about establishing boundaries around which we will not have to experience certain types of experience because they're too much. I think Maybe that's a stretch,
1: but... No, I don't think it's a stretch at all. you?
2: Know,
0: <laughs> no, I think, I think he's I, right on
1: money. I, I agree. Yeah, yeah. I mm. mean, there are several things which come to mind. <laughs> One is, implicit in what you're saying, and I'm going to make it explicit, is getting in touch with and acknowledging our own capacity for evil. And uh, this is something I've discussed with Hokai, and we both agree that Until you have touched and acknowledged your own capacity for evil... Wrecking havoc. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Then you aren't serious about mindfulness. (laughs) 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 You know, mindfulness is just a game. Yeah. Uh But when you touch that level in yourself, mindfulness becomes real, because now you understand why mindfulness is important. Mm -hmm. It becomes a necessity. It's a matter of life and death. Yeah. Yep. And further, I agree with you completely that what you're describing, that using spiritual practice to avoid uncomfortable feelings is what turns, it's kind of an interesting definition actually, what turns a spiritual practice into religion mm-hmm. in, in the institutional sense. Yeah, because right. all institutions are about a restricted range of experience.
0: Yeah, and it goes back to morality, because you know, what what's yes. permissible, what's not. Exactly. What gets included, yeah.
3: what gets excluded. Yeah. Which again is a flattened sense of refuge. Yes, yes. A shallow or flattened um, yeah. meaning of refuge, just getting away from something.
1: Yeah. In my own practice, and I, I've just written an article for Tricycle, I told you I wrote this mm. article on anger, but it's all about this. In my own training in the Tibetan tradition, it became virtually axiomatic that the way you found freedom was by experiencing as completely as possible the chaos and confusion of your own reactivity. And it was only through that uh, finding by going into the reactivity and just and it, it, it was part of what the symbology of the protectors is about and so forth and, and finding that awake quality of mind in that that freed you. If you weren't doing it that way, then one way or another you were involved with suppression.
3: Yeah.
1: And uh, it took me a very long time to learn that.
3: And, the, and avoidance and, and exactly Exactly, yeah. So I think there's a
1: tremendous amount of what you just said there. And
0: this
3: is probably a good place for a
0: good moment for us to segue towards the, talking about. Uh, teachers. Here's the point that I, I think doesn't get spoken about very often because Buddhism, although it has its communal side, and although people may meditate together, to meditate in a room with other people is quite different from actively engaging in a, in a ritualized ceremony as a team or as a group of members that participate in a single activity. And I think that that, that kind of individualistic streak within different forms of Buddhism has been one of the the elements that, as Zizek has pointed out, has allowed. Buddhism to be co-opted in the neoliberal ideal of the individual as the locus of meaning. And one of the ways um, that we lose some of these things we're talking about, these more risqué, more destabilizing, more dangerous types of of, of relationships with what's uncomfortable, is that you need somebody to help you get there, or to remind you, or to provide a context in which that may happen. Or to push you. Or even, yeah, if necessary, to push you or to turn the mirror, or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And one of the consequences of these scandals, as you both well know, that have come up, is that that's been silenced even further, or it's been pushed aside. And I think that resonates as well with this whole whole idea of being pure again, or the pure society, or egalitarianism. It's created a, a landscape in which all of those kinds of rich experiences are no longer possible. And I think that we're challenged in a way, although, again, maybe that's not the interesting place to go, but I should say just to acknowledge it for listeners, it's not that the problems that have not been highlighted by these scandals coming up are not real or should be forgotten or ignored. But having those kinds of relationships does not need to equate to that. And when we lose the capacity to have those more confrontational kinds of relationships or powerful relationships, we lose so much, it's unbelievable. And we're left with what we get with this kind of therapeutic mindfulness landscape in which there's no spark. There's no, there's no wood rubbing together. Where's the point? Where, where to go with that? I don't necessarily know. I don't know what you guys think, but uh, I for one know that the, the greatest leaps I've made in, let's say, progress when using quotey fingers has always, always, that's probably a big word, 90% of the time, always involved other human beings. I don't see how I could have grown in so many areas of my life without another human or several human beings being there, helping me to see and feel and not turn, turn our backs, turn my back on experience. And there's a dearth of this, huh? And it's why I was talking to you before about teaching these teens. They crave it as well. There's a craving for this in people. It's not just the social formation of a certain type of hierarchical structure. It's in us, this kind of desire. yes and that you're
1: able to do this with those teens, you're, you're doing something that the parenting and standard education system has um, omitted. Yeah, allowed to they to do provide,
3: yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, But what I want to do, I want to pick up on what you just said and go to the word sutra. Sutra means, um, is usually described as where the student's mind and the teacher's mind meet. And it, uh, it actually has the same root as the word suture, you know, sewing up yeah. a wound, because you're, you're bringing the two sides of the wound to meet. Mm. In Tibetan, the word is do, uh, which is a crossroads, it's, a, it's where two, ro- two roads meet. Is it Pierre Hadot in his book, Philosophy is a Way of Life, which uh, Stephen Baptist encouraged me to read? At one point, he says that real learning takes place only in the interaction between the teacher and student because when the student is meeting with the teacher the student is pre- is no longer able to be completely in his or her own world is having to step out and present understanding or experience or whatever to the teacher mm. By the same token, the teacher has to step out of his or her own world because he or she cannot rely on a formula from a sutra. There is a live human being in front of them. So they both step out of their world into another world and Mm -hmm. that is the meeting, that's the sutra. Mm -hmm. And almost all of the sutras are actually uh, set up as Q&A sessions. And it's in that meeting that the magic happens.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And somehow or other that quality of uh, actual meeting where you are freed from the usual psychological pressures and societal pressures or societal conditioning and that's partly the purpose of rituals, partly the purpose of creating sacred mm-hmm. spaces is to create is, is, is those spaces where that can happen so that a different kind of knowing can emerge, because neither that kind of knowing cannot possibly emerge when the psychological and societal agendas are operating. So there's probably more that could be spun off what you just said, but that's where I'm starting your turn. Your introduction seemed,
3: seemed uh, to, to point in the way of, of asking if this kind of clarity is there, how and why does it get subverted? You were mentioning scandals.
0: Actually, no. I was more thinking about the fact that the scandals have kind of closed down a lot of possibilities. Oh. To the point that people won't even think necessarily about what we're discussing as having a place anymore in the realm of the spiritual. It's like it's as if the scandals have kind of closed the door on the kind of thing we're talking about. It's been shown to be too problematic too risky, we can't trust ourselves. In fact, that was the point I wanted to make, the second point. That um, I think there's um, a, a profound distrust in this kind of Puritan edge, which has almost a, a complete loss of faith in, in human capacity and creativity. And therefore, we can't... Humans are too risky. They're too wild. Yeah, well,
3: instead of sorting things out, we, we get divorced, right?
0: Right. It's too messy. Yeah. So let's just ban it. Yeah, let's just exclude it. from will just move
1: on. But there's a there's a, pro- a, a profound misunderstanding of trust in that. Mm. You know the exercise of which is often used in leadership, where one person stands and one person stands behind them and they lean back, and mm. just catches. So I've used that in teaching situations, and what I ask people to focus on is where is their mind. At the very moment, they feel themselves tipping past the center of gravity. And usually you have to do this two or three times. So they have a person, they lean back they find their cop and ask them what they experience. And get them to narrow down. So until they're paying close attention to what is going on in their mind or in, in their experience, difficult to talk about. It's not a cerebral thing. Yeah. At the moment that the body goes past the center of gravity. And most people are able to recognize that at that precise moment, nothing is going on in their mind. It is completely open. They're not, There isn't any sense of trusting in something. There's just a total openness. They've gone empty. And that's what's actually happening. So this kind of trust that you're talking about precludes that possibility of going
3: empty. Actually, like it bridges it. Yeah, it, it skips over it. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: you're, you're yeah. absolutely right. Got to take a fall, man.
3: <laughs> you got to experience the fall. You got to experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it yeah. can be made as safe as possible, but the
0: yeah, I, at the point I was making is that in the search to make everything safe and innocuous, yeah. the fall is eradicated. It's and just avoid it right. yes. and I'm saying that considering you know, as I was to use my own story those are the most important moments yes yes if we I mean, eradicate from a spiritual we, point of view yeah. absolutely. Yeah. if we eradicate those then, then what's left you know, to a certain degree if we're going to have a, a more explicit conversation about this kind of thing and what allows for the cultivation of those kinds of human relationships we do have to acknowledge that it doesn't always go as planned which is a point you both made in the first half Yes. You may pay, but you don't know what you're getting. <laughs> and you may get nothing. And you may get nothing, or you may get a hand on your knee that was unwelcome. <laughs> <laughs> but how do you, you know, what's the story you tell about that afterwards, right? I mean, as uh, I've too. also there's a the story of what you do. I mean, right. I, I,
1: I had a student who, her, her psychology was fragile. And uh, she was a very determined person, but she, 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 she had, definitely had a fragile yeah. of psychology. Uh, but she wanted to do a uh, Zen Sesshin. Mm. And so she went to study with, uh, she went to do a Sesshin with a teacher who had a known reputation for coming on to women. Mm. I'm not going to mention names at this point. And, uh, so I, I, I gave her a heads up. She came back and she was, she loved the Sesshin. Mm-hmm. And this was, an, uh, this was a Rinzai teacher, so these are no-jokes Sashins. Mm-hmm. They're, they're tough. But she loved it. And she loved his sermons. And he came on to her. And she said, I want to go back. And I said, why? I love the Sashin. I love the sermons. What do I do about this other thing? And I said, OK. What you do is, when you go in for dokka the interviews, mm. You are absolutely clear in your mind that if he makes any move on you, you're going to look him straight in the eyes and say, "What does this have to do with the practice of Zen?" <laughs> Fantastic. And she came back from the session. He never made a move on. Right, right, right. I bet. Yeah, because he could feel.
3: Oh, he knew enough. He knew enough. <laughs> <laughs> and now she knew enough. Yeah, and. and the,
0: what, a, what, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. what I'm pointing to here is there's, a, there's, there's two sides of the responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. In mean, victim you know, culture, this not, that can't kind of exist, right? Not, not a strong woman. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, she was strong in certain ways, but mm-hmm. she was very fragile in others. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is which is okay.
0: Mm-hmm. You know. No, it was okay, but she knew how to, what to do, mm-hmm. and she just did it. And of course, I mean, the other point of this as well is, is um, he, he needs that too, right? Exactly. And that's the other point. It's, it's that social duty we have to each other again, which is missing that's a very in much of this discourse. Thing. That's something we owe to each other. Yeah. 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 You know, and I think that way. It's like when people... I had this girl, um, she was an 18-year-old Chinese girl, but she was born in Italy. And uh, she came to me one day in a lesson at the beginning. She was quite discreet. She said, Matthew, can I ask you something? I said, sure, sure yeah, obviously. She said, "Can you tell me, um, do you think my subs- my uh my substitute PE teacher is racist or not?" I said, "Oh, this is interesting." <laughs> and she told me a story. She said, "Well, basically this morning, you know, this guy turned up and he, you know, he kept calling me Chinatown." He said, "Hey, Chinatown." Right? and He spoke to her in this way for an hour and a half. And she said some of my friends came up to me. She didn't think it, they did. She said, "Oh, he's racist. You should do something about it." So she said, "What do you think?" And I said, "Well, uh, doesn't matter what I think. Let's, let's talk about it as a class. So we turned it into a discussion in which they had to weigh up, right? The pros and cons of this kind of discourse. And once they made the decision, the next question I asked them is, well, what should she have done to manage the situation? And that was when it got interesting because there were the moralists who said, well, you know, you should go to the, the Prezi there, right, the headmaster, and complain. Da, da, da. Report. Yeah. Exactly, you should tell your parents But then the other half of the group, and it was about 50-50, said, well, why didn't you just tell him to stop saying it to you? And she was like, yeah, I could have done that too. And that was the point. And then we had a discussion about, well, I asked her, do you think he was racist? What was your feeling? She said, I didn't feel he was racist. Okay, so what did you feel? Now, what do you think? And she got to the point where she kind of said, well, yeah, at the end of the day, I probably could have just asked him not to call me Chinatown anymore and to call me by my name. And I said, do you think she, sorry, he would have learned something from that? And that was the point. He would have benefited if the group, instead of victimizing her and complaining to somebody else, had actually got together and just said, thank you, that's enough. Wouldn't necessarily have worked out that No way. guarantee, but there's a, what do you get if you pay him? But at least they would have done something that might have helped him to grow as well. And it would have helped her because she would have
1: been standing up and not relying on a higher authority.
0: And she would avoid stepping into that easy dichotomy of good, bad teacher, poor, victim girl or not. Yeah. And again, that's lost. We, we see that with this um, Jonathan Haidt, who you mentioned before. Yeah. It's but I can imagine... Parenting that, and everything. I yeah. still
1: can imagine people listening to, to this discussion yeah. saying, well, that may, have been, that may have been a very unsafe thing for her to do. And I think that has to be...
0: Acknowledged. Acknowledged. Yeah also life I mean when when you get to a certain age what are you after you're after everything to be safe or not at some point this takes us back to Camille (laughs) Paglia yeah you participate in the world as it is or you keep projecting your fantasies about how it should be and uh, is there a middle ground there I don't know yeah
1: but I think for women in some situations it's you're asking a lot yeah you know none of us are women here no no and it's uh I've talked with enough women too. Mm-hmm. Another area that this whole this takes us into is the idea I presented a bit earlier about taking the mystical or the spiritual into the artistic domain. Yeah, because I think some of these uh, questions arise because, on the one hand, from the religious side, an expectation of moral purity is being uh, is is present when your own interest. Is not so much in morality, but more in the mystery of life itself. In artistic communities, uh, they're renowned. It's, it's never—they've never been safe in the moral sphere. It caused all kinds of problems. Lots yes. But it's also been the basis for all kinds of creativity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's and an interesting I, I don't think these are easy. Uh, no, easy no. Answers, but No, no. When you when you make it safe you lose something, and when
0: it isn't safe, you lose something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and there's a certain degree of negotiation taking place in the explicitness of talking about roles and duties and the kind of community that's being created or the dynamic between teacher and student, which is something we've gained. I think that is a gain. And I think part of the point that I probably didn't express fully before is, is it possible? Well, I think it must be, because I think human Beings are ingenious creatures capable of so much. But which which reiterates the point I wanted to make as well about the loss of faith, the loss of faith in basic human capacity to do good or to find creative responses to life. And I think there is an element of that to us, which is often excluded by this this paranoid reading of society as, as being inherently evil or based on power dynamics in which there are victims and oppressors and nothing else. Or everything's political, is this phrase you hear at the moment. Everything's political. Well, that doesn't tell us much at all, really. And I think that there are spaces in which we can continue to cultivate basic human decency, which is an idea I like very much. And I think that Emily, you know, this, this girl, Emily, whose name is invented, by the way, her first instinct, once we had a, a, a final conversation, which I didn't finish up on that little story, was that her first instinct was actually just to speak normally to this person. That was it. Yes. And it wasn't until she started thinking about it and rationalizing that she got caught up in all the other stories. You know, for a young woman, it's not just the risk she's taking because she was in a group. She wasn't just him and her in an office. I see. You know, what she could have gained in confidence or learning also by just having enough self respect to say, you know what, that's not okay. Could be life transforming, right? It's a door opening. And she would also be a mirror and a teacher for the other young girls that were there and the young boys to show whatever happens as a consequence, there's potential for those kind of things to emerge as a wonderfully surprising and unexpected experiences which can benefit everybody involved. And there's a poverty of thought, I think, um, in a lot of discourse at the moment, which kind of excludes that basic goodness which does exist in human
1: beings. Yes. Uh, and what you're, imi- you're reminding me of a lot of different things here. Uh, but one of them is that Uh, There's two points I want to try to touch on. The first is that there's a kind of irony here. Uh, America, right now, the, 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 the crime situation in America is such that America is probably as safe as it has been in the last 30 or 40 years. And yet people are far more fearful than they have been. It seems that a lot of that, or some of it at least, can be attributed to the constant stream of information from the media which says bad things happen because we are far more aware of bad things happening everywhere. Mm. So the frequency hasn't increased, but our exposure to them has, and so there's a, a, an effect there. Yeah, yeah. But the um, incidents of child abductions and so forth, mm. murders and things like that, they, uh, they are at all-time lows. Yeah, yeah. That people feel more unsafe than they've ever, yeah. ever felt. Oh, and the other is, and you, you touched upon this in your uh, what you just said, uh, a conversation I had with a friend of mine in San Francisco is that a lot of what is called political is probably better seen as cultural. That is, with the proportion of whites steadily dec- the, the the percentage of whites steadily decreasing, in America, in California, for instance, whites are no longer a total majority. This is requiring white people to interact with cultures that they, in a fundamentally different way, than they had to before. Mm. When institutions become involved in those in, in, in that interaction, institutional agendas. Dominate the conversation, and that's where it becomes political. Mm. And so, conversations such as the one you're suggesting with Emily, or the one I described with this uh, Renzi teacher, once can, it's much more difficult for those conversations to be take place at the institutional level, because the institutional agenda is different. And so political considerations, and, and, and protecting the institution becomes uh, paramount. So, I don't know what the answer to this is, but, but there's a problem there, that, that it's, it's when the institution mm-hmm. steps in that what would ordinarily be two people from different cultures working out how to interact with each other in, in, in a constructive way, now it becomes a political issue. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, big mess.
1: In all, of the, in all of what we're discussing, I, I want to introduce something that may seem quite unrelated. You know, but, you know, we, we talk about the mystical, and we end up in the problem of society. Part of the reason for this is that, I said earlier, that the in order to pursue the mystical, you have to create a space which is free from uh, psychological, i.e. personal conditioning, Family conditioning, and, all those and, societal. and societal gems. That's become much more difficult because all space and time and everything is owned by somebody, consumed and consumed Confined. in a way that it wasn't even a hundred years ago,
0: and uh, or fifteen years ago, actually. So think about well, the acceleration yes, it, of social media.
1: I, th- I think you're right, yeah. And so, one of the, 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 the function of retreats is actually to create those, those spaces that people actually rebel against in, the, in a certain sense, because when they're seeking safety, they're actually bringing their conditioning, uh, conditioned agendas in, in, in with it. So I'd be interested exploring your ideas on how do people create those open areas in their life? Because without that, they're not going to be able to seek what they truly yearn.
3: I like to look uh, to think of some past examples mm-hmm. for, uh, if not for guidance, then for inspiration. But very often we, we we insist that conditions have changed, so that what was possible in the past is no longer possible now, right? But but I would I would still insist that it's not possible now in the same way. But there must be a way in which uh, in, in in which we can create uh, uh, reliable gaps in conditioning, uh, both for ourselves, which is the which is the uh, the role of formal practice in everyday life, and together. And I think that sometimes we we overestimate uh, the. The power of say say technology. You mentioned social networking and, and the, the ubiquity of the devices and all that. It's not so much of a problem with the devices themselves because these are more or less neutral. It's the problems of of how much we get hooked mm-hmm. on the devices and how much we, we uh, uh, well I was I was surprised to to experience several times uh, times a sense of panic when I touched my pocket and found there's, uh, my, my, my smartphone wasn't there, <laughs> you know. It's like, it's like finding your leg missing or something. <laughs> and I went into that, you know, and actually made it a point of, uh, of, of creating um, uh, uh, opportunities where I actually leave the smartphone behind, just to not, not to be free from that panic, but, but to get in touch with it. And to explore what's underneath it. Right. And it's it's just a funny little example. It's it's not so terrible as, as creating situations where you can't rely on on, on on most of your conditioning, you know, to to function properly. Uh, which would be a situation of a prolonged retreat period.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, where after after a week or so, you know, things start to gradually, you know, either fall off or show themselves and, and their ugly face, you know.
1: Much more so after nine months. Even, even, yeah,
3: yeah. That's that's a wholly different level. I'm not talking about long retreats. Um, I've never done more than 100 days, so... That's enough. I would have known, yeah. yeah. But uh, uh, certain things that were done in the past needs to be done now, such as retreating from from physical environments and activities. Uh, but another example would be to, to start and uh, actively, de- uh, actively deploy our imagination as well. And when I say that, uh, I mean actively pursue uh, situations that we uh, fail to recognize as, pra- as, as opportunities to practice. Can you give an example? Uh, one example of that would be disagreement. Okay. which these days seem to be the uh, international universal currency, the most uh, affordable one, or the the most popular form of, of disagreement, grievance, right? Mm-hmm. There seems to be a, 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 a growingly accepted standard of social, you know, behavior and, and basic decency to air your grievances. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, That's an extremely, you know, just looking 20 years back or 50 years back, or if you go further, it becomes even worse. That's an extremely infantile uh, way of behaving. When I noticed that, I will give my personal example, I started questioning every disagreement I have. So every time when I would experience a disagreement with something, not finding something disagreeable, that that can be very general, you know, but finding actual disagreement with, with someone else's statement or behavior or something like that, uh, i may I made it a point of 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 asking what was it that I found disagreeable what what was it that I disagree with and why why do I disagree with so basically turning the turning the disagreement on myself by doing that uh, I find that the the, the the power of the power of opinion which which we take for granted you know the power of opinion can be severely Diminished. Diminished, yeah. To the point where dominion no longer has—did uh, I say dominion? Opinion. Yeah. Opinion no longer has dominion over you. Instead, mm-hmm. it's it's just a possibility which which is being offered. Yeah. Uh, one that you don't need to uh, bite into, you know, uh, as a first reflex. Um, so that's that's just one example, but but there are many examples like that where. People often ask, you know, how do I take my practice from the cushion into into normal life? Well, one popular example is paying attention to how you speak, right? Yes. Yeah. And that, another popular, uh, you know, example is, is uh, just just watching your body, watching your posture, mm-hmm. moving, you know, carefully, approaching others carefully, you know, displaying yourself with 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 regard and respect to others, not just because it feels comfortable. Things like that, right? But but I think that we also need to go inside increasingly and, and, and start, to, start to actively, you know, uh, question some of our most basic habits. Uh, and, and one of them is having an opinion. You know, you could joke in the old way and say everyone has an opinion, right? But, but actually actively engaging it, I think, prepares a, a better ground for then creating a gap without going through a ridiculous amount of withdrawal symptoms. Because frankly, you know, not not, not many people will, will create a, a situation where they can practice for for months or, or years on end, uh, uninterruptedly. I, yeah, I agree. Um, it's relatively rare. There was a period in, in, in you know in Western Buddhist movement where a relatively uh, significant amount of people went through that, but that number hasn't grown. Uh, no,
1: it's it's actually
3: collapsing, right?
1: I think it's shrunk, considerably. it's shrunk considerably. Partially because people just have less money.
3: Even though uh, allegedly the you know the the, the conditions to do that are, are there, like you know places where that could be done. Yeah,
1: but, uh, uh, the big thing is that many people simply can't afford to take uh, so long time off 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 work. Yeah, uh, it's much more difficult to step out of society now.
3: Yeah, those are socio-economic conditions, but but then we can we can we can compensate by creating more optimal internal conditions.
1: But this goes back to Matthew's point this morning of commitment. Yeah,
3: because I, I found this practice of, of disagreeing with my disagreements, uh, so, you know, so to speak, humorously, uh, or or not going for them, uh, you know, <laughs> automatically, extremely annoying. <laughs> yes. Yes, <laughs> and, monster,
1: which, and monstrously inconvenient. Inconvenient,
3: yes. yes. Which, 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 you know, uh, I was, I was happy to find uh, That's the annoyance, the disagreements, were, were were a decoy for. Yeah. Yes, the practice revealed the annoyance that was there. I was, right. I was one heavily annoyed character,
1: right? <laughs> so. d- disagreeing with everything, and, and as long as you just let those things run, you didn't have to feel that. Yeah, exactly. See, taking and sending does the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But it does go back to your theme of commitment, in my opinion, Mm -hmm. because as Hoka has uh, been pointing out, and and I agree with him that in today's circumstances, our commitment has to be such that we are... Prepared to create the internal conditions yeah. for practice, rather than relying on the external conditions, That's which uh, you know, which made it easier in a certain way. Mm-hmm. I mean, it had its own challenges. But that, that is less an option for most people. Mm-hmm. So there has to be a higher degree of internal uh, commitment to creating the internal
3: conditions, and it's not easy.
1: No. Well, I'm going to. Say, I'm just going to go further than that. Well, the other thing wasn't easy, but this is. <laughs> it, it, it is. It, it is harder, but I, I'm. I'm going to throw this out. And I'm not sure how many teachers know how to do that, and if they don't know how to do that, then.
0: how, how do they? How do they? You know, transmit it. Your thoughts? Oh, my thoughts on that. Yeah, I don't know. I, I see these things being created far more easily when people are actually invested in a certain type of relationship to begin with, which goes back to my point about the fact that we need human connections. The fact that you were saying you're, not, you're unsure about how many teachers, if we stick with Buddhism, are capable of, of being aware of what we're describing and then introducing that and transmitting it successfully to others doesn't surprise me at all. And I think that's also mirrored in the transmission of knowledge more broadly across society to what degree are teachers at university or teachers in high schools or teachers of anything capable of not getting caught up in the themes that we've been talking about today and entertaining the idea that a person could actually not be identified with their bloody opinion. You know, I'm of the basic idea that you can't teach anything if you don't have it, right? If I don't know how to make pizza, I can't teach it to
3: you. I can read some instructions or explain a video, but what do you get from me and... Are you suggesting that this particular kind of relationship becomes a model for something that you can then continue doing on your own? I would suggest that as an afterthought, yeah.
1: Yeah, in I, I, that particular Hans view, was that the, for, uh, the function of the teacher was to plant the teacher and the student.
0: That's <laughs> exactly what you were saying. Yeah. I, I think we're compelled, whatever we discuss or we imagine is possible, that the material of our age is some of the stuff we've been talking about. And a lot of it is entrenched in the identification with ideas. And I think that practice you you, know, you developed just from talking about your mobile phone and then you got to that, it, it is really good. I think that's another way of thinking about what I was doing with the teenagers that I described to you before. You know, it's like, what, what is an opinion as well? Where does it come from in the first place? What effect does it have on you? I was describing the fact that I teach critical thinking and I tried different approaches and they didn't work. Because these young people were just so disassociated from the ideas that were being presented that they couldn't conjure up any kind of authentic response. And there wasn't a right or wrong one either. But it's like, where do they begin to start to be aware of what happens within me when I have an opinion, then I identify it, and then I throw it out in the world uncritically. But maybe that's, that's more of the kind of practice we're gonna see evolving over time, because that destabilizes you know, the reactive patterns that we were talking about as well. I think there's a kind of demand that's probably going to come up with some other teachers that I speak to at some point, other te- teachers, um, which is to what degree are they capable of bringing teaching and practice into a relationship with the big issues of our time that are defining the boundaries of what people are capable or not capable of experiencing or going through. Because that's another kind of an inherent theme in what we've been talking about. And it comes back to commitment again. I don't have the answers to that. Anything I'm, I'm positive about is that, as I said before, I teach young people, very young people, and they, they have these drives within them. They're not, they're not suppressed completely until they get to the end of university, maybe they go out into the working world. That desire remains, and that gives me a lot of faith in people. And I feel quite positive about that.
3: Optimistic? No, just positive. Just positive. <laughs> 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 but you see, it's not just when I was when I was referring to those opinions. It's not just a matter of opinion; it's also a matter of, of uh, spiritual assumptions. Right. Most importantly, because right. because uh, you know, I, I try my best not to not to not to be uh, caught in in socio political you know net of opinions. Mm-hmm. But then uh, there's this other thing that I'm more interested in. Mm. Right, the, the the theological and and the ethical level, mm. and and there there are many opinions there too, yeah, and some of which I find disagreeable, mm. you know, and uh, I, I hold opinions which which others may may find disagreeable, you know, as as somewhat sacred to me, uh, etc., you know. So mm. there's there's an interesting uh, ability to uh, to to keep an open mind, not for the sake of openness—that's mm-hmm. that, that's become somewhat of a magical world, word mm-hmm. too. You know, be open and, and things like that. But but to to learn how to how to stay open is, is an ability, is again a verb. Just as Nirvana, right? To 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 not allow oneself to get stuck, even when even when you know something has worked many times, mm-hmm. you may just come upon a situation where it doesn't. Right, so so even with spiritual assumptions, you know this—it always happens this way. It, it has always been done this way. It needs to happen this way. There just may be an exception to everything, yeah. and and we, we need to to keep our ears perked and really be alert, you know, uh, when to uh, see an opportunity and, and to do something in a different way. Mm-hmm. Because I, I think that at this point, what, what Ken was referring to before, the, the slide from religious to spiritual, from spiritual to religious, their differentiation and all that, I think that, that, that many of uh, basic spiritual principles have by now become a sad cliché. Yeah. Yeah, which means that basically they have lost their transformative uh, power yeah. you know, at, at the level of, mm-hmm. of standing for something, you know, as a symbol. Mm-hmm. So they still refer to a practice if, which, if engaged, w- will take you deep. But uh, th- there are no longer principles that you bring to your mind and they create an earthquake, mm-hmm. right? People just go, there's desire and then there's desire. For example, what you pointed out before, right? Mm. There, there's blind desire and then there's a, this deep yearning, mm. you know, almost a craving for something, right? And you say that and people just go, yeah, yeah. Nothing happens. There's no differentiation of those two levels of desire mm-hmm. and, and yearning. We need, yeah, we need to question everything, basically, and, and be willing to trust our own best intuitions and know where we are thin mm-hmm. and, and work on that, too. But I would say that we are entering a, a period of uh, everyone's responsibility in a good way, mm. uh, not the wisdom of the crowds that you mentioned before but uh, a time where, where we no longer have the luxury of blaming others for what's happening to mm-hmm. us. Right Something like that. that. That would be my positivism, Don't, not not optimistic one.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I think there's another dimension of what you're saying. Because as you're talking, uh, there's a tendency for people to go to ideology. Yep. Uh, and Which is... A, 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 fixed belief and then yep. everything gets justified in terms of that and there's another author I like, James Carson, The Religious Case Against Beliefs. I was thinking of that, um, yeah, yeah. Belief marks the point at which one stops thinking, yep. but not in a good way. Yep. And one of the things that I found helpful uh, is, um, which I'd like to explore with the two of you, is that to view ideas as descriptions of experience rather than statements of facts. Mm -hmm. I have a friend in uh, Northern California that I meet with quite regularly he's got a background in Buddhism but right now he's a practicing Quaker his view of things and my view of things are substantially different, the the notion of transcendence is very important to him Mm -hmm. and I'm going like well I'm not even sure transcendence is possible and uh, he, he he views uh, human nature as utterly depraved that's his terminology wow which uh, is you know yeah. of yeah. factors of the sure. yes, and, yes. and, and, and Chinese philosophy and, and uh, things like that and I'm coming from the Mahayana point of view of Buddha nature which is, is slightly different and I mean there are all kinds of differences those are just two examples but we have the most fruitful Conversations, and I think... Productive disagreements. No. Not just? No. Even more? It's more... Uh, I hate to say it quite this way, and, we, and there's probably a better way to say it. We don't pay any attention... To disagreements. Because, I mean, he gets into terrible arguments with some of his other friends who want to argue against his view that the nature of humanity is utterly depraved and utterly dependent on grace. That's another part of it. Yeah. Okay? Whereas, I, when, when I hear him say these things, he's describing his experience, and I can't question that.
3: You can be curious where he's coming from.
1: Exactly. And that's what makes the conversation fruitful, Yep. Yeah. and vice versa. So, when he says, you know, grace is very important, it sounds like it comes from outside etc. We, we get into a very, very interesting and, for me, very fruitful conversation because it opens up possibilities in me. But it comes from taking what people are presenting as facts, as descriptions of how they experience life
3: mm-hmm. and
1: how they experience mystical practice or mystical, you know, whatever, rather than how things are, which moves into opinion and ideology and all the things that closes things down, so I just want to throw that aside. Uh, And I think part of the reason we've had such a wide-ranging conversation is, you know, today is that we've moved around, covered a lot of topics, and I haven't sensed any area in which any of us have taken, this is how it is. (laughs) You know, I mean,
0: what's your interest there? Yeah, I think i would resonate with, with both of what you had to say about opinion. And it makes me think about another point, which is that the most interesting discussions taking place in the public sphere, but I would also suggest within things like discourse on Buddhism, is where people are willing to entertain the kind of curiosity that you've described and are willing to challenge their opinions and how that forms identity within a role, within a closed sphere of human practice, yeah. which is, you know, sounds a bit over the top, I guess, way you've said, but that's how it comes to my mind. And it's even like in the political sphere. If you get someone like a Jonathan Haidt, who I'm also very familiar with, he's great. What's he, he's doing kind of what you were both describing. Yeah. He's not having a left-wing discussion or a right-wing discussion. He's saying, what happens if we actually allow them to operate together? And we're curious about why they're happening. Or well, there we might actually learn something and have a new kind of conversation, which to use your friend's term would transcend the limitations. And let's be honest, just the boring, the boredom for me is boring, all this idea stuff. So when people say, what's your opinion? Well, I don't have an opinion. There are opinions that I participate in. And on a good day, I don't identify with any of them, but let's explore them together and maybe something interesting will come of it. Right? They become That becomes a kind of conversational practice that we could engage in right now, which is kind of what we've been doing. And it's so much more interesting, I think, when you allow others to have their opinions and you don't take them too seriously, which maybe is an element, again, of your relationship with your friend, because it allows them, perhaps, to express themselves freely without getting caught in your need for them to identify with what they're telling you, if that makes
1: sense. Yes, and you're also, uh, in, in what you're saying, moving away from the call-out culture. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which, which is such a inhibition to real conversation.
0: Yeah. Bloody evil, in my opinion. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> I don't use yeah. that word often, but I'll use it in this context. <laughs> yeah. And or cowardice or infantile, which was Hokai's word from before. It's like playground rules, isn't it? Look what Johnny said. Look what Johnny said. You know, it's just done on Twitter and suddenly Johnny's a a homophobe or a racist or a Marxist or whatever it is.
3: Twitter has become
0: a battleground. Yeah, It's a funny one. It's sometimes hard
3: to believe these people take it so seriously, but they clearly do. I, I, I always go back to thinking it's just infantile. Yeah. I agree. Okay, so you know we often end up talking about what's happening currently in the culture and the society a little bit, uh, but and, and we seem to be talking about uh, certain mystical principles and all that. And there was a time when Ken and I had this conversation when I brought up the the possibility, or or as far as I go, it's it's almost a fact, it's a historical <laughs> fact. <laughs> there we go. That the mystical practitioners of your were practical people. They were not what we usually call sense, removed from the sphere of human interaction and and social social, uh, realities. But they were practical people who very often brought certain solutions to uh, seemingly intractable problems, whether it's legendary or mythic or not, not to mention the the story with the Buddha with the two kings preparing to to fight the war and then uh, serving as some kind of trusted intermediary even other figures as well uh, were, were known to to come about with solutions for very practical problems. And there was a point where, according to you, uh, I, I, I made a, an error in connecting the the, the point of, of, of mystical practice in, in devising such solutions, right? And where you insisted it was just a side product, at best. Mm. But I, uh, ten, I tend to see it. Can you go big. back to that a little bit? What's the connection there? Because I, I wasn't even sure what I was saying at, okay. the, at, at that point. Okay. But, but you seem to, to see a danger there.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to use the example of Utant. Utant was the second Secretary General of the United yes. Nations. Burmese, correct? Burmese. Yeah. He was deeply respected by all of the international diplomats, doesn't matter what persuasion. Because he was had a singular skill in being able to create an environment in which peop, two people of completely different opinions and you know you know how crystallized things are yeah. at
3: the international possibly level possibly distrusting yeah, each other yeah,
1: yeah. could actually talk.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Now th- that ability. Mm-hmm. I would say it was probably a result of, of, his of his practice. That's what I mean about a side effect. I don't think it was the point of his practice. Mm-hmm. And I, I think if you approach mystical practice with the intention to develop a skill in the world, you're in trouble. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there are facilitators and, and moderators and diplomats I know who very purposely developed. Who have explicitly
3: trained those skills? Yes, yes exactly. who use and, them as a technique. Yeah, yes. and
1: some of those people are absolutely extraordinary. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. In, in the way that they can deploy those skills. What I'm talking about is a person who has this mystical yearning that we've been discussing, and I, I you know, you, you mentioned many times, Matthew, for them to explicit unless there's, there's a personal interest for them to develop that uh, to. Say the point of my mystical practice is to develop those skills, I think is selling themselves short. That they're, 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 yeah. they're not going to find the fulfillment of their yearning in, in, in that endeavor. They'll find themselves falling short of what they themselves desire in their hearts. Mm. But, and I'm not saying that everybody who pursues mystical practice will become a brilliant diplomat either. Yeah. Uh, because that that takes you in yeah. another direction, yeah. um, and it, also it, depends it, on
3: also depends on, on, on the inborn natural abilities, and abilities, also, yeah. but you also
1: he, he was a diplomat by, by trade, so and
3: by education, yeah, and,
1: and so and so this is the point you've made in other conversations that we've had that when you have a certain skill or trade or training or whatever, and as your practice matures. That skill moves to other levels, but it doesn't come magically. It isn't it's just like, oh, I had this mystical understanding, now I can do this. Then, this is the old idea of a mystic, a, a mystic as being a kind of superhuman.
3: Yeah, uh, what would you yeah, yeah, that's important. Yeah. Yeah. I think another point that's important here, which, which, which I just become aware of, is that having a particular end in sight actually blocks your practice. Yes, any kind of end. Except yes. Yes, you
1: you you are you are following your calling, and you have no yes, idea where it's
3: yes, going to lead you. That's a very important aspect, and that's that's one of perhaps the main reasons why it's so difficult to, to be you know specific about what it is, and to, to be more more perhaps uh, you know wiser to say what it is not.
1: Mm-hmm. In a few years ago, I was in a situation where I was internally very clear but I absolutely didn't know what to do. And it was, it was a very challenging, very, quite difficult period. And uh, Hokai was, you know, one of the people I was talking a lot with. And I remember just having this feeling of, I can see where i meant to go. I just have no idea where it's going. And so there was an element of trust, but I didn't even know what I was trusting in. Mm.
3: Or even the details of how to do it. Yeah, nothing. No. Yeah. Nice. This
0: is a good place to stop. Uh, how's that as a selling point? It's a, it's a good place to stop. Everybody's going to sign up to mysticism very quickly for listening to this. <laughs> thank you, gentlemen. Well, thank, thank you. you. Thank you, man.